I, uh, I appreciate the, the introduction very much. I, um, I, I had an interesting, I'd say about year and a half. Uh, normally I'm at the University of Texas, but, uh, but as you mentioned, I had the benefit past year and a half of International Affairs Fellowship with the Council on Foreign Relations. And what the fellowship does is it gives academics an opportunity to work with policy issues and actually in policy making organizations, international organizations, uh, domestic organizations, depending on the topic. And, um, and so over the past year and a half, I had, uh, I had this really interesting opportunity to work with a, a number of international organizations, but mostly with uh, UN and UN officials on issues relating to conflict and regional cooperation in the Middle East, Central Asia, and also Afghanistan. And um, so what I'm going to present to you here is based partly on what I discovered during the course of my fellowship, the, the things I learned, but is also going to be a very first cut at my next project, my next academic project, which is all about state failure and the response of neighboring states to failure in their midst. So it's a topic that is, is both academic in motives to answer certain unanswered questions, but also has some really clear policy relevance. And so what I'm gonna, the question I'm posing today is how do states cope with failure in their midst? Or what explains the strategic response of a state or states when their neighbor fails? And I, I wanted to start my title slide. I wanted to put this picture up there um, and share it with you. I thought it was really interesting and very telling. This is actually one of the experiences I had in Afghanistan in a military, an Afghan National Army training base just outside of Kabul, where uh, about a year ago, I had a series of briefings and interviews and conversations with people that got me to thinking about the issue of a failed state's neighbors. So uh, me and a number of other visitors on the base were talking to these soldiers. These are Afghan National Army recruits. And we had a chance to you know, see them in action, uh, doing exercises, and then afterwards talk to them about what it's like to be members of the Afghan National Army, what their hardships are, what their hopes are, what their experience has been like. And then, interestingly enough, the conversation shifted to policy, international policy issues. And we were having some very deep and fascinating conversations with these military recruits, um, many of whom aren't even literate, who can't necessarily write in their native languages, but really intense and good policy discussions. And each and every one of these recruits had an opinion on what the source of Afghanistan's political woes were. And a lot of them, a lot of them pointed to the neighbors. And they were able to tell stories about which neighboring state had contributed to Afghanistan's problems, which had undermined it, which, had, uh, which state had assisted it, and how. And it was, a, it was kind of a, a very fascinating experience for me, and it got me thinking about this issue. Later, when I was, uh, I was doing more work as a fellow uh, with CFR, one of the issues that constantly came up the policymakers were asking about is how can we get the neighbors of a failed state to contribute to its rebuilding. And 
In order to answer that question, how is it that states cope with failure in their midst or a variation of that, how do you get states to cooperate more to help a failed state? You have to actually think about what the universe of responses is that a state can have when its neighbor fails. And I came up with, with four types of potential responses or four types of, uh, let's say, orientations that a state can take towards a failed neighbor. One of them I call a trench digger. Now, I'm, I'm coming up with these four types just because they're actually quite uh, vivid and they're memorable, only for that reason, but I'm not wedded to them. Uh, but here's what they are. Here's what I, I figured that the universe of a response might be. Uh, one of them is to be a trench digger. So if a neighboring state fails, one of the options you have is to basically take a series of defensive measures to guard against spillover from the neighboring state. You fortify your border controls, uh, but where you're basically creating a wall. You're building a, a, a wall, so to speak, and you're not doing much to assist that state, hence the, the caption trench digger. Another possible response is that you can be an opportunist, an opportunistic neighbor, where you do things where you aggressively or not so aggressively take advantage of the failed state situation to get some sort of benefit, political benefit, material benefit, resource benefit, or benefit in your foreign policy. So that's an opportunist, what an opportunistic neighbor might do towards a failed state. The third thing that might happen is that you might have a state acting as a selfish altruist, namely that that state works with the failed state, the neighbor works with the failed state to give aid, to give technical assistance, to give organizational assistance, to help the state recover. And, um, and the reason why I label it a selfish altruist is because on the one hand it appears to us to be, um, to be a good thing that the state is helping its failed neighbor. But on the other hand, one can see why a neighbor of a failed state would have a pretty strong interest in taking measures to help that state recover so that threats don't spill over. Refugees, rebels, terrorists, illicit drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And the other type that's part of this universe of responses would be to be a team player, where you could be a state that works multilaterally to help the state recover, where you work either with other neighbors or regional powers in the neighborhood, or where you work actively with international organizations to assist the failed state. So what I wanted to do as I looked at Afghanistan is to see which of these responses in the universe of possibilities do we see. Are they stable? Do states, once they adopt a certain uh, type or a certain action towards Afghanistan, do they change it? Is there a predominant type? And what seems to be driving those responses? So that's what I'm trying to explain. I'm trying to explain these types. And there are a number of plausible explanations that we could look at. What I'm, what I'm giving you right now is sort of the, the conceptual motive for this project and its 
you know, sourced back in the work that, that we do in international relations or comparative politics. But very soon I'm going to talk a lot about Afghanistan, so hold on for, for a moment if that's what you're waiting for. Now, what are plausible explanations of the response a neighbor might take towards a failed state? So we have the universe, but here's the potentials. So from international relations theory, we could imagine that threat is driving the response, that a state is adopting certain policies towards its failed neighbor because it wants to avoid contagion or spillover from the things I mentioned, from refugees, from insurgents, and so on. Another thing that may be driving the response a neighbor takes towards a failed state is the scope or the type of intervention that's already present in the failed state by outside powers, by international organizations. It may be, for example, that there is already such a large multilateral mission in a place like Afghanistan by the British, by the UN, by the US, that there isn't much room for neighboring states to find a place. There isn't a niche that they can fill or something that they can do. That's one possibility. The other possibility may be that the very parties, the very outside parties like the U.S. or the U.K. that are intervening in a place like Afghanistan may be off-putting for a regional power that doesn't want to work with them to help a place like Afghanistan. The other thing that may be driving the response may be competition with other states in the region that um, the only concern of these neighbors that haven't failed may not be the failed state. They may have security dilemmas or rivalries or problems with other states in the area. And this may be driving the orientation. Just, again, a universe of potential explanations. But these, of course, on, on the left side, on the international relations side, assume that states are unitary actors and that foreign policy is unitary. If we were looking at this from a comparative politics point of view, it would look very different because we would open up the state and we wouldn't assume that the state is a unitary actor necessarily. And within comparative politics, we could, we could look to a number of other explanations. For example, uh, one thing that is very commonly studied in comparative politics and specifically in the literature on state failure is state strength. So... How much, for example, does a state monopolize the co course of authority which in its territory? How good is a state at uh, providing for its population? How good is a state at having a unitary foreign policy? Right? Things that are domestic level attributes. Second thing that we might want to pay attention to or look for is, well, do the neighbors of this failed state have cross-border ethnic ties? with the failed state? And could it be that what they're doing is driven by these cross-border ties? And one other thing, one other possibility is that in the neighboring states there might be regime change that may transform the interests. And a new government may come to power with very different interests towards that, that failed state. Now, what I'm going to talk about here for, for the rest of my time I have about 20 minutes, is that right? Okay. Is Afghanistan and its neighbors? And I'm gonna look at, at these states. I'm gonna talk about each one of them in clusters that are neighbors 
states that border Afghanistan, that share contiguous land borders with Afghanistan. And I'm also going to include India uh, for two reasons. I'm including India because um, if India were to, India basically used to border Afghanistan within living memory until the creation of Pakistan. Uh, and also, India has such a, a severe territorial dispute with Pakistan that, if resolved, would actually cause it to border Afghanistan. Right? But it's mainly the 47 issue that's driving me to keep India in here. Um, so, okay. So, what I did was I looked at what each state was doing towards Afghanistan from the fall of the Taliban afterwards, from about 2001 to today, to see what its behaviors were towards Afghanistan, whether it was undermining Afghanistan, whether it was assisting Afghanistan, and how, the content of the assistance. And I asked whether these states roughly fit the types that I laid out, right? trench digger, opportunist, selfish altruist, or team player. And, and here's what I found. For example, uh, I found three instances where we could classify Afghanistan's neighbors as trench diggers. One of them is Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan is, I don't think I can get the cursor to show, but Turkmenistan is up here, borders the northwest of Afghanistan. Um, Turkmen here, and here was Tur what Turkmenistan did from 2001 afterwards. Uh, when the U.S. ousted the Taliban, Turkmenistan took very quick moves to fortify its borders, to move border guards down to the south, to seal off the borders, and even though it had participated in a number of summits considering Afghanistan, concerning Afghanistan, uh, where it had made certain promises, like all, practically all of the other states, it, within months, became clear that it wasn't going to fulfill any of these things that it had promised with respect to assistance. One of the things that had been promised, for example, was that um, there would be a lot of oil deliveries given to Afghanistan. This was done once one-shot deal, and that was it. For the most part, the policy was one of closure. Fortify the border. Don't let anything get through. Um, the country also said no initially to even accepting Afghan students in its universities. So it was a complete policy of wall building in respects. Uzbekistan was also a trench digger. Uzbekistan is located next to Turkmenistan and shares a border with Afghanistan as well, just to the north. Uzbekistan also fortified its border, uh, not just with border guards, but it actually started building series of trenches, walls, huge towers along that border. Um, so it actually looks like the category of trench digger. It actually really well typifies the category of trench digger that I laid out. And it suspended contacts, it suspended ties, it kept the border closed. In fact, um, it, the international community had a hard time supplying the UN mission through Uzbekistan, even though Uzbekistan said that it was going to allow 
its southern borders as an entry point. So it completely seals the borders, doesn't want anything to do with this state. Again, the interesting thing about these two sort of trench-digging countries is that they had been part of the multilateral political discussions about what to do about Afghanistan. They had both pledged to help. Then you have China. China is back here. It shares a small border with Afghanistan. Um, in certain respects, China is automatically a trench digger, geographically speaking, because the border is small. There's a huge wall of mountains. It's impassable for many parts of the year. And so it's not really easy geographically for things to get through. But it's also a, tre a trench digger more importantly because that was the attitude that it very quickly assumed towards Afghanistan. Now, these states right here, almost all of them would take part in multilateral conferences where Afghanistan would be discussed and problems and solutions would be proposed. One of the states that was least present in those, surprisingly, I think, was China. China was the one state that would hesitate to be present in a lot of these multilateral conferences. So China initially, however, goes into Afghanistan, starts doing a little bit of road building, starts doing some small reconstruction projects in the country. And there's a terror attack in 2004, I believe, on, um, on Chinese workers working on the roads. And the country basically folds its operations and leaves. Its diplomats are still in Afghanistan. Chinese diplomats are still in Afghanistan. But the country kind of freezes a lot of its projects. And what people would often point out is that Chinese goods were all over the country, that Chinese goods had flooded Afghanistan. But people wrongly equated that with Chinese presence in Afghanistan, that those goods were brought in by third-party traders, mostly Pakistani Pashtuns that were bringing Chinese products first into Pakistan and then carrying them into Afghanistan. Uh, recently, there's perhaps a change in this trench-digging attitude uh, uh, that China has. And that's that um, there was a recent deal signed where China is going to put a $3 billion investment in an Afghan mine. But what's fascinating about this is that the mine is located in a very, very concentrated small part of Afghanistan, and that China as a state really has no other presence to speak of besides the embassy in Kabul and this future mine. So it's been tremendously hands-off from a country that it borders, unlike practically all of its other neighbors. So it's an interesting orientation, and it seems to fit the idea that it's a trench digger. Then we come to... Actually, I think this is a... I made up this... Um, this chart that I think can help you see the types, right? So I discussed Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. China is the trench digger. And I'm going to talk about what I call the selfish altruist. Not, probably not the best category, best way of describing the category, but an interesting one. Starting with Iran. The two that fit this category neatly are Iran and India. Iran, in 2001, is involved in some of the first discussions about Afghanistan. 
alongside the U.S., something that isn't very well known, that Iranian diplomats are sitting side by side with U.S. diplomats talking about what they're going to do. Taliban is out. International community is trying to revive an Afghan interim government. And what Iranians say, the Iranian diplomats say, they say, we don't care who is in power as long as it's going to be a capable technocratic state that can control its territory. And subsequent to that statement, now the Iranians don't work multilaterally towards the same, but unilaterally they start to give a series of technical, monetary, and political assistance to the Karzai government to back this up. So what do they do? I think within the first three or four years, they give half a billion in assistance to Afghanistan, which is a substantial amount of money for a state like Iran. They start building roads in the country, electric grids in western Afghanistan. They, at some point, throw money, cash money on trucks and send it over the border so that they can pay teacher salaries for the Afghan government because the ministries weren't ready, weren't yet able to start paying the teachers, even though the schools had started to open up and operate. And by 2004, 2005, Iran is complaining every chance it gets, complaining quietly, but every chance it gets to NATO, to the UN, and to other states that are in Afghanistan, that the army is being built too slowly in Afghanistan. What's interesting about India, if we go to the other state that I've called a selfish altruist towards Afghanistan, is that its attitudes actually resemble Iran's. Um, India is one of the first to open consulates throughout Afghanistan, something that really irked Pakistan. We'll get to them in a minute. And in addition to that, it starts to send teams of bureaucratic cadres to Kabul and other provincial cities in Afghanistan to train Afghan officials of how to run ministries, how to run district offices. So it's doing something really specific that relates to governance and recovery of the Afghan state. Like Iran, it's also engaging in road building throughout the country. And it emerges within six years as the number five donor of foreign aid to Afghanistan just a little bit behind Japan and Canada. What about the opportunists? Who are the opportunists? Well, Pakistan is, in a sense, I mean, I probably don't need to tell you about this, but this is largely how Pakistan has been portrayed as, as taking measures, right or wrong, that have hurt Afghanistan. Not much aid compared to India border closures. It vetoed Afghan participation in uh, a number of conventions. 
But the other interesting state that fits in this category is Tajikistan. Tajikistan is to the to the north, the north east of Afghanistan, right up there. Here's Pakistan down here, and Iran is over here. Tajikistan, one might have thought that it too would have been a trench digger because it came out of the Soviet Union like Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. Tajikistan had had a violent civil war in the 1990s and was trying to recover from that civil war. So you would have expected the state to perhaps take a very defensive role, fortify its borders, and try to keep any sort of spillover or contagion out from Afghanistan to prevent itself from collapsing again. But that's not what happened. What you saw in the case of Tajikistan is that the state maintained an open border. Even as it developed border guards, it didn't really fortify its border with Afghanistan. And it didn't really extend much aid to Afghanistan. Now, this is less, the, the fact that it didn't extend aid is a little bit less puzzling because Tajikistan was poor itself, and so it didn't have much to give. But it is interesting that it did not fortify its border. Instead, what you see is that the border remains open and that it becomes one of the main conduits of illicit traffic downwards into Afghanistan and northwards out of Afghanistan. So you have things like drugs flowing out of Afghanistan and weapons and precursor chemicals that are used to refine Afghan opiates coming down from Tajikistan into Afghanistan. And one of the reasons why we could label this a form of opportunism is because this open border and the allowing of this illicit traffic actually fundamentally contributes to the health and revenue of the Tajik state. Okay. So more of that in a little bit. Okay. The, um, the other thing that I want to note here is what can we rule out? Now, what does not seem to be driving the response by each of these neighboring states? Remember, I, I laid out a whole series of things that we could plausibly look at. For example, uh, the threat, the level of threat or spillover. And what is interesting is that, is that a lot of these countries experience very similar types of spillover from Afghanistan, where rebels go over, where illicit substances go over, but they don't take the same response to that. So threat, or the level of threat, doesn't really seem to be driving it. The, the other thing that doesn't seem to be driving the response of Afghanistan's neighbors is the ethnic issue, the ethnic ties. Why do I say that? Well, Turkmenistan is an ethnic Turkmen state, and there are minorities, Turkmen minorities over the border in Afghanistan. Uzbekistan, mostly ethnic Uzbeks. There are substantial populations of ethnic Uzbeks in Afghanistan. Same with Tajikistan. 
right? And yet you have different policies. Never mind the Pashtun populations that straddle both sides of the Afghan-Pakistan border. So none of those seem to have a clear driving force behind the strategies that states choose. Instead, one of the things that I find interesting is the state strength explanation, that there seems to be something. If you can roughly plot these, the states that I talked about, on an axis where you where you determine how much they undermine versus assist and weak versus strong, that you get this interesting sort of clustering where stronger states tend to assist and weaker states tend to undermine or behave opportunistically. The Uzbeks and the Turkmens I put right in the middle because uh, in terms of undermine versus assist because they sort of sit in the middle and don't do much. But this I found fascinating, that, that the weaker states tended to undermine a failed neighbor. Now, why might that be? In the case of Pakistan, one of the things that's happening is that low state strength, and we can use a number of indexes that are, uh, that are being used in political science to put Pakistan over here. Right? There's, there's the foreign policy index that measures state strength and failed state potential. There's the King and, um, and Verba project on failed states. So there's a number of different indices that I looked at. To, and, and, I, and this is not exactly, um, this isn't a systematic measure, but what I did is I looked at these various indices and plotted the states on where they average out on these three different indices. Here's where Pakistan falls. And one of the explanations that we could give is that states that aren't very strong or aren't very unitary, they don't have a monopoly in their foreign policy, and that there are different actors that are driving foreign policy towards the neighboring state, the failed neighbor. In the case of Pakistan, you have the foreign policy establishment, you have the Pakistani military, but you also have the ISI, not to mention these tribal areas and the ruling structures there that have their own foreign policies towards Afghanistan that compete with what we see as Pakistan's formal policy. In Tajikistan, what happens is similar, but a slightly different, different outcome. So, so Tajikistan, by all the indices on state strength, is considered to be a weak state. Um, it's not under threat of going back into civil war as it was in the 90s, but it doesn't do very well in governance. And in the case of Tajikistan, what seems to be happening is that, is that while the state, the capital, has a foreign policy position and has 
certain foreign policy strategies that they put into play. One of the ways the state stays together with respect to coercion, with respect to extraction, with respect to taxes, with respect to revenue, is by giving the different pockets of the state and different warlords in the state autonomy. And what's been happening in Tajikistan throughout its territory is that the capital city has been in this modus vivendi where it exchanges where it allows the warlords to maintain authority in that territory, but it also gives them a right to establish ties over the border with other forces in Afghanistan, with other notables in Afghanistan, that end up undermining Afghanistan's unitariness, but allow the Tajik state revenue that keeps the political system together. And one of the ways that this is happening is through the illicit drug issue, where one of the main sources of illicit GDP in Tajikistan is actually uh, illicit substances, narcotics that are trafficked, precursor chemicals, and guns. And this contributes a substantial portion of GDP, even taxable income and public services, but doesn't allow Tajikistan to have a more constructive foreign policy towards Afghanistan. The, the other thing that does not seem The other thing that, that I believe is very interesting about this case is that what you see are all of these state strategies, they persist, and they seem to trump multilateral initiatives. So I told you about how there were all of these conventions and all of these conferences where um, the UN, the US, they've tried to get the neighbors to contribute more. None of these have worked. So at every single one of these conventions, states have pledged a number of things, but they've left them, and within months, they revert back to their old strategies. So these strategies seem to have staying power, and they don't seem to change too much. The other thing, like I've been telling you now, is that this whole indication of like state weakness versus state strength seems to be very important in determining the orientation, and that state buildings appear to be very important. The other thing that I'm finding, and this is all tentative, this is that rivalries in the region also matter. Uh, what do I mean by that? So India's, India's sort of selfish altruism to Afghanistan India's policies of selfish altruism towards Afghanistan are driven to a great extent by its rivalry with Pakistan. And it is quite possible that Indian foreign policy and the willingness to assist is motivated by policy that allows it, through assisting Afghanistan, to contribute to Afghanistan's strength, to win a future ally, and as a side benefit, also gets it closer to Iran, because there's been some collaboration over this issue. The other way that uh, rivalry can matter 
in changing this. The other place where I've discovered this is with Uzbekistan. And we said that Uzbekistan has been a trench digger. Now, in the past year, this has slowly started to change. And you've seen Uzbekistan go from having a very fortified and back-turned policy towards Afghanistan to starting to develop some ideas and some initiatives of how it can contribute more to the country. So, whereas before it was all about closing the border and keeping things out, now Uzbekistan, is about a, uh, I think is about a year ago, has become the main provider of electricity to Kabul and to northern Afghanistan. And if you... One of the explanations for this could be that it's revenue, that it simply gets revenue. However, however, it doesn't really get much money by donating, by giving the electricity. The electricity is given very cheaply to Afghanistan. What seems to be driving this, though, is Uzbekistan's emerging rivalry with Russia in Central Asia and emerging disputes in the region with the Russians. And that it's now starting to become a little bit more active and a little bit more engaged, productively engaged with Afghanistan in order to have approval and some sort of a potential cover from the U.S. or the U.N. in case its relations with Russia further destabilize. So these are some of the very tentative uh, things that I've discovered in the course of, of looking at this. This is a very new project that I've started on, and uh, so I'm looking forward to any comments that you may have, and I will give them my fullest consideration. You know, when you start something new like this, uh, this is actually the best time to get feedback because you know, you're not as wedded to the stuff, so something you say could have maximum effect. So uh, let, me, let me end it at that. Thank you. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Um, two questions. I guess first, you framed the project as these are responses of neighboring states to state failure. But I wonder, um, is Afghanistan a failed state, at least initially? I mean, the U.S. comes in, topples the Taliban. It's not obvious that immediately they are therefore now a failed state. They may have become a failed state as a result of the insurgency and so on. But for several years, it doesn't look like a failed state scenario. So I guess I'm wondering, are they responding to Okay. That's one. The other question is, um, why no irredentism or secession? There's no pressure, it seems, to break the country up, no pressure from the outside to poach regions with ethnic nationals and so on. So why, why does everybody seem intent, both inside and outside, to keep the borders of Afghanistan the same? Okay. Uh, with respect to your first question, do you mean why do we consider Afghanistan a failed state today since 2001 or since before that? I mean, since 2001, at least the first few years, it does not seem like a failed state kind of scenario. Right. It's, not, it's not obvious that these states are reacting to a failed state. That's okay. Um, okay, that's, that's actually a good question because you didn't have the scale of violence from 2001 onwards uh, that, you, that you do, I think, starting in 2006-2007. That's uh, it's quite a good question. Now... It is a failed state, though, 
it's a recovering failed state if you look at sort of all of the things, all of the, the measures, all of the indicators that states are supposed to do in terms of having a monopoly of violence over the territory, having coercive forces that, that rule that territory. What you have in that period is you have warlords, you have dormant insurgents, and they are running their own parts of the country according to their own policies. They're each taxing populations according to what they see fit, according to local resources. They're raising their own police sources. Um, they are, one warlord in the West, for example, was, was taxing customs, was collecting customs revenues locally and refusing to give them to the central government in Kabul, and then using that money to build his own army and also to invest in, in, in dispersing public services. So it's a failed state in terms of there being something that you can consider a cohesive, nominally centralized state. Um, so in that sense, for Afghanistan's neighbors, however, these things didn't matter. To them, whether it was peaceful or not, whether there was central rule or not, in their eyes it was a failed state. And the reason why it was a failed state for the Iranians is because they had waves and waves of refugees continuing to come from Afghanistan. So they wanted to do something about having to live next to what they considered to be this, you know, wretched, non-centralized, non-technocratic state, Iran. The Central Asians, they recognized that the Taliban had gone in remission but they were convinced that they were going to come back any moment. And if you look at what the Turkmen ambassadors would say in 2001, 2002, 2003, as well as the Uzbeks, they would be saying that, okay, we have calm now, but we've got to really get this government together quickly. Otherwise, within months, the Taliban will be back. And they're doing that again today. They're, again, they're rephrasing some of those things. So to answer your question in a long sort of way, there are these measures that we can use in political science but at the end of the day, I think the better answer is that a failed state is in the eyes of the beholder. And in the region, the region states considered it a failed state. So that's one of the reasons why I sort of take it seriously and I, and I look at this question accordingly. Your question is, uh, your second question is also interesting, which is why no irredentism or secessionism? In, um, and I think that that's, for Iran, it's a little bit more clear because Iran had certain populations that it favored in Afghanistan and wanted to protect or cover or have ties with, such as um, uh, co-religionists, the Afghan Shia and Hazara populations. Um, in Turkmenistan, the minority groups, Turkmen minorities in Afghanistan, were much smaller. They were perhaps one of the smallest minorities. So there's really not much irredentist potential in, in the plainest sense of the word. If you look at percentages of ethnic groups in Afghanistan and where they're located, lots of Uzbeks up in the north, very close to the borders of Uzbekistan. Tajiks in the north, very close to the borders of Tajikistan. And Pashtun populations straddling the frontier. So those are the three populations where according to simple cut-and-dry political science statistics, you would worry. Um, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, however, do not want anything to do with these populations in terms of corralling them, having them to become part of their territory. And that's because ethnicity 
does not matter as much for the rulers of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan as does staying in power, as does revenue. And in the case of Tajikistan, to actually enfold and envelop all of these populations who might be ethnically similar but have different systems of rule, different warlords, who have guns, who may not like your president, would be dangerous. So basically the drive to stay in power trumps any sort of ethnic considerations in this case. And it's an interesting one because it operates differently from a lot of the cross-border ethnic and irredentist politics that we saw in Europe or in certain parts of, uh, of the Caucasus, for example. Pashtun situation is, is also interesting because um, the state of Pakistan does not have a great interest in promoting Pashtun separatism because this would Pakistan is a multi-ethnic state and this would completely alter the demographic balance in Pakistan. It would be, so to have irredentist claims on Pakistan would be quite damaging. In fact, one of the things that, that Pakistan has worried about in the past is that Afghanistan would become too strong and that it might be the source of potential border changes, that the Afghans themselves one day may want to change the border. Does that answer your question? And, and you, were, you were waiting. Go ahead, please. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Um, I really enjoyed your presentation. Um, the situation of Pakistan uh, is more than a, when you look at the history, it's uh, more than what is. When Pakistan became independent in 1947, Afghanistan already is a member of the United Nations General Assembly, and Afghanistan wanted Pakistan not to become a member because there was this border dispute after Afghanistan. From that point on, the leadership in Pakistan, both military and civilian, were going to undermine Afghanistan. Even before the Soviet Union, there were three border closings in 1952, 1963, 1963, 1963. And also during the time of Bhutto, his supporters, some of his early, like, uh, Rabbani and Bhutto, and others, they did want to have a coup during the time of the So this is more than really reacting to what happened after the Soviet Union. It, it is an opportunist, there is no question about that. And second, um, there is a sort of Cold War going on in Afghanistan between the Shia influence coming from Iran and also the Sunni, so to speak, Salafi Wahhabi groups of Saudi Arabia and others to undermine the Iran and influence. So that's also one thing. The non-actors are very active in Afghanistan. I just wanted to ask you that if you have really, I'm certain you have your research covers that area, that what this Shia Sunni dynamic is happening right now in Afghanistan. Okay, sure. The, um, it's, it's a great question, and if I can ruthlessly summarize what you just said, it's that history matters, and that there's been a history of, of rivalry between Afghanistan and Pakistan and a rivalry that's just that's not only represented by the capitals but but also by the groups within and I agree with you I agree with you what and I'm gonna have to figure out some way to capture this in this study one of the reasons why why I did this as such is because I wanted to take take a, a rather arbitrary starting point just to see what kind of things I could find the so it's not perfect, and I will look into it. However, with the Sunni-Shia uh, rivalry, it's very interesting. It's, I, I can tell you a few things from the time I spent there. This is something that p 
people were, were very careful to discuss. Afghan officials were very careful in front of foreigners to always put their best foot forward. In fact, when I sh showed you those sol soldiers at the beginning, they were each part of a different <coughs> ethnic group. There were some Sunnis, there were some Shia, different religious groups, but there were some Tajiks, some Uzbeks, some Hazaras. And one of the things that they were very, very careful to repeat constantly is that no matter our religious background, no matter our ethnic background, we are all Afghan. And you know, one of the things that Afghanistan has going for it is that it does have, while it has a very, a very weak tradition or hardly any experience of having had a central state, so it has a weak status tradition, it actually has in many respects for the region, a fairly strong tradition of kind of a national identity. Now, this still breaks down you know, during times of conflict. And one of the things that, and we saw two things. The first thing is we saw that the government in Afghanistan was underneath the facade where they were telling international officials, we're all brothers, you know, we want everybody to have a job, it doesn't matter, this minister's from this group, that minister's from this group. What you saw is that the appointments, the ministries, the, the district level things, all political appointments of consequence were being doled out on the basis of these considerations and on the basis of ethnic and religious considerations insofar as they would keep the main ministers and Karzai in power. So these things are used very strategically in Afghanistan, depending on how much support, votes, and revenue they can bring in. That's one thing. The other thing that we saw is that um, as the talk started to come back of making deals with the Taliban, who are, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, Sunni and Pashtun, that the Tajiks and the Shiites would start to get very nervous. And they would start to feel that the tide was now turning against them and that their positions were threatened. So right now, when Karzai and the UN are talking to the Taliban, this is actually going to have a huge, huge effect on making the Shia feel very pessimistic and that they might not have a very secure political future in the country. So something that might make the insurgency a little bit easier to deal with might make Afghan politics a lot more divisive. Yes? Sorry, it doesn't require what? Okay. Okay. With with respect to Afghanistan. Yes. Yeah. Um, whether it fits the framework you mean? Or or just what do they do? Which type? Which type, yeah. Um, you know that's that's a good question. With respect to the political economy issue that I, I only vaguely allude to that when I talk about the state strength. 
Uh, it's something that I decided to kind of keep out of it at this point because I didn't want to piggyback too much on, on the old stuff. I, I kind of wanted to, I was kind of, basically what I was trying to do is to look at this case and to not be biased in terms of some sort of a theoretical background or a prior approach that I had taken to see what kind of dynamics and trends I could pull out of it. But you're right that the more I look at, at this thing, one of the things that I see clearly driving the behavior of Uzbekistan is that it's an autarkic state with a closed economy. So it doesn't want open borders. It doesn't want goods coming in from Afghanistan. It doesn't want its goods leaving Afghanistan. Um, here's the other interesting thing about the Uzbek case. They were complaining for a really long time. You know, we'd like to help more in Afghanistan. We'd like to help more, but you know, you're not letting us get these reconstruction tenders. The reconstruction tenders are only for Western companies or for Pakistan. Then the international community turned around and said, okay, we'll let you have the, the tenders. Like, we didn't really want them. Thanks. Right? So the, the autarky and the closed economy could potentially be a variable driving this. The Tajikistan thing, I'm convinced that it's, it's economics, which keep the country in balance. I mean, the Tajikistan survives on the basis of illicit trade, smuggling, and foreign aid. And it has absolutely no interest in being a trench digger towards Afghanistan because that would result in a closed border. It would cut off these revenues from smuggling, even as the international community might make up for some of them, not all of them, some of them by giving Tajikistan some, let's say, border assistance to close its border. So in that respect, it's a big E, right, like you're saying, for economics because there's revenue involved, but it's that revenue that allows the very strange system of the Tajik government to stay in place, where the capital has a modus vivendi with all of these locales that do the smuggling and skims off the top. Um, I, I agree with Pakistan. As for Saudi Arabia and Russia, um, um, so which of the four types do they fit? Russia is a trench digger. Russia is a trench digger in the sense that um, it withdrew from Afghanistan in the sense that it contributed border guards to the Central Asian states to help them guard their border with um, with Afghanistan. Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan threw them out eventually, not because they didn't want to have a closed border, but because they were able to close it by themselves. Tajikistan took longer to throw them out, but the reason why it took them longer to throw them out is because the Russian border guards in Tajikistan were actually contributing to the smuggling and allowing stuff to get through. So it feeds back into the, the political economy explanation. No, it's true. It's actually, you see these UN reports and they're fantastic. They show you that, that the Russian state wanted to keep spillover out from Afghanistan because they knew that if stuff got into Central Asia, if drugs got into Central Asia, if extremists got into Central Asia, they would eventually make it to Russian territory. They would eventually make it to Moscow, partly because of the loose visa regimes between these former Soviet countries. Uh, but if you look at what happened on the ground with the Russian soldiers, they completely lost control. Now the Russians are sort of starting to come back into the fold because they realize that these things aren't, uh, haven't worked too well, but they're doing it as a team player, which is the type that I didn't have for any of the other states, which is that they're trying to work with a number of UN agencies 
behind the scenes to get more involved in Afghanistan. They can't do this unilaterally, though, because of their history, and that's where the history issue comes in. The worst thing a Russian diplomat can do or Moscow can do is to have a policy towards Afghanistan that appears to be too unilateral, right, given the history. And so they're trying to embed themselves more in the multilateral community. And um, for a while, for a while, the UN was resisting because they thought they had enough people, enough donations, enough help. The U.S. was definitely resisting because, uh, partly because of the problems with Russia, partly because uh, we just didn't think that they had anything good to add. But now, so now the Russians are going from being a trench digger to potentially being a team player. The transition now that I describe, as well as some of the other transitions, for example, Uzbekistan's transition, may mean that these four types are not, in fact, static, and that they may, under certain conditions, change over time. And that's my policy interest in this, which is to find, to find the conditions that would change a state from being a trench digger or an opportunist to a selfish altruist or a team player. So you can get it to contribute in the political community's effort to, to put together a, a failed state. The Saudi Arabia, what would Saudi Arabia be? Saudi Arabia would be, well, Honestly, and this shows you that the types aren't perfect and that there's a little bit of, of, of flow and arbitrariness to them. I should never say this, but since I'm not giving a job talk, it's okay, <laughs> that you could see Saudi Arabia as an opportunist in that it's aid to Afghanistan, which tends to be in religious humanitarian things and mosque building, that it helps Saudi Arabia's image in the Muslim world, but it undermines Afghanistan's reconstruction by funneling money into mosques for certain religious sects, but not others, and particular ones that may be more sympathetic and more helpful to extremists or Taliban insurgents than others. So it could be an opportunist, but people who take a less sanguine view of Saudi-style religious aid may consider to be a selfish altruist. I would say that it's probably an opportunist. Is that okay? You made me do it on the fly. Yeah. Um, it's it's a strong state, but but I'm I'm strictly using you know the existing you know foreign policy uh, King and Verba criteria, which which look at a strong state not not internationally, but domestically, and what it does. And it tends to come out as a strong state. Yes? I'd like to push you a little bit on the policy. Okay. Uh, um, I presume that it's the predominant view in Washington that the neighbor of Afghanistan that matters most here is Pakistan. Um, and I also presume that the dominant view in Washington is that it's regional rivalry um, that drives the So far, this, they haven't been able to figure out a way to overcome that. So, my, my questions to you are: is this, Do you think this is right? Is this the direction that your own research is going? Um, but then, whatever you think along those lines, how do you give advice to the policymakers about how to overcome the regional rivalry that may Pakistan a better Okay, uh, that's a fair question. Uh, at this stage, it's hard for me to give any sort of hard and fast advice because it's very tentative. 
And if I'm giving advice, I probably will never be in a position to give advice to policymakers on, 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 on this issue in any sort of a meaningful way. But, um, but again, on the fly, you wouldn't quote me on this. I would say that you first have to make a choice as to whether India or Pakistan is more important to the future of Afghanistan. And once you make that choice, you then, if you were to choose Pakistan, then you would roll back India. You would find some way to roll back India to close some of their consulates in Afghanistan to make Pakistan feel that Afghanistan was less India's playground and more a neighbor that needed assistance. So if you can, so if rivalries indeed do seem to matter, as I'm saying they do, you would want to soften the rivalry with respect to Afghanistan so that Pakistan could take a possibly more constructive role. However, the problem would remain that Pakistan is not a unitary state, and there are four principal sources of foreign policy towards Afghanistan coming out of Pakistan. But with Uzbekistan, it was great. So they're starting to have rough relations with with Russia, and so what do they do? They start they start uh, altruistically sending electricity to Afghanistan to get on the good side of the international community. So it, it's a it's a give and take. Um, Incidentally, here's here's the policy issue is, is really important. I do want to make a, a comment, a further comment on kind of the sources of policy, um, on the basis of what I saw the past year. The there are all sorts of levels of difficulty in making policy towards a state or towards uh, or here towards Afghanistan. The first is is that there are very strange geographical decision, uh, divisions in places like the State Department, in places like the UN. So, for example, uh, I spent a lot of time interacting with people at the UN in political affairs, the Department of Political Affairs, and one of the divisions that deals with the Middle East and West Asia, you know, from Israel and Turkey to the borders of China. However... Afghanistan is part of the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. And so policy comes out of DPKO and not political affairs. And so it has a real problem when, say, a department at the UN or a department in, within a, a policymaking arm of a country is in charge of all of Afghanistan's neighbors but not Afghanistan itself in terms of policy. That, that's a very debilitating thing. And I saw many instances where it was impossible to push ahead with some very smart, very viable, very great policies towards Afghanistan that involved the regional neighbors because Afghanistan wasn't part of the purview of the organization. That's one. The other thing that makes it incredibly difficult to have, even if you can have some great findings, do this, don't do this, and all the neighbors will help, the thing that makes it difficult is that there is a fractured and, and deeply, deeply divided market of aid and policy in Afghanistan. And um, and I, w- I was actually talking about this with, with Alex yesterday. Um, one of the things that I saw is that in each district or each province of Afghanistan, there were different countries that were in charge of policy. So in, in the north, in the Mazar-i-Sharif area, it was the Swedes. Mazar-i-Sharif right up here. In Wardak, it's the Turks. And they bring their own policy and security interests to the table in those provinces. So one of the things that, that um, 
the Swedes were doing is they were doing a lot of women's rights stuff, you know, which is great for the Swedes and great for Sweden's domestic publics to feel like they're doing something that they value, but it was tremendously incendiary for the local populations. What was doubly shocking for local populations, and this was really lost on the Swedish, uh, on the Scandinavians actually that, that were doing this, is they had, as one of the things that they would work on for development and humanitarian issues and human rights, is they decided to deal with uh, child sexual abuse in Afghanistan, which is very worthy and very important, but sent the signal to Afghans that the Swedes believe that we're pedophiles, right? Uh, whereas other places of Afghanistan, other countries wouldn't touch this. Other countries would have very different development repertoires. Uh, and then, of course, in the capital in Kabul, you have 12 governments of consequence that are dealing with, with the Karzai government and pushing him in this direction or that direction. So I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic that even if I could have some really amazing and durable policy recommendations, that we'd be able to apply them. Well, it, it does disappear from this presentation. 
It, it doesn't. And I think that your comment is very fair. I don't actually don't disagree with it. I think that you're right. I think that where I would capture that would be when I talk more about state building. When I say that state building matters, one of the things that, you know, that's my tentative conclusion now. And so what I'm going to do at the next stage of this is I'm going to have to go back historically to see where these state building dynamics come from and how it is that they matter. And of course, the, I'm going to talk about the Northern Alliance and the Pashtun issue. So you're right, there's no way to artificially cut this at 2001. But I decided to do it here just so that I could take a little bit of a bite and see where it gets us. It's problematic, I agree. But I promise you that in the next iteration, you will have satisfaction. Is that, is that fair enough? Um, I, I like both of your comments. Um. So I, just, I was thinking about it with Russia. So you said, you know, the Russians yeah. don't want to be seen as acting unilaterally in Afghanistan. Well, the Russians also don't want to be seen as assisting the United States, right? They don't want to be seen as having a pro-American uh, policy. Yeah. And then over, as time goes by, it becomes less of an American thing, so that they can start to, you know, take baby steps and do it multilaterally. So I could make this Yeah, I think um, let me let me take that one first. Then I think that that is that's a fair comment. The um, it's because the U.S. is so present. There's really not a good way to distinguish what effect it's having as a variable, right? Because it's not it's just sitting there in the middle of the place, right? Um, the what I would do in order to parse that out is I would have to choose a case of failure and recovery where I'm looking at neighboring states in a context where there may be a smaller UN mission or a smaller multilateral mission that doesn't involve the US or that involves the US in an area where its role hasn't been as problematic 
And so that would be one way of seeing whether we get any sort of fundamentally different trends. Um, the the um, the, th the thing about the U.S., though, that, that is fascinating is that one might have, since the U.S. is in Afghanistan, is that Iran would have been more conflicted about participating in the stabilization of Afghanistan. And it didn't really do so multilaterally, but it did in a very, very strong and determined unilateral way and through all the measures I gave you. And that... And that shows that it may not be as simple as simply, you know, it being a proxy of a relationship with the U.S. Because we, we may have seen Iran behaving more towards Afghanistan like it did towards Iraq, if indeed the U.S. was the only issue driving it. Uh, but again, the only way I could really, I could really deal with that would be to choose a case where the U.S. is not as present or absent from the recovery effort in a, in a failed state. The um, I like your suggestion about laying out what the universe is of offerings of all the neighbors versus their actual potential. I think that that would be um, that would be great. That would actually be great. And one of the ways I could do this uh, would be to to actually go back to all of the the conferences that these states attended and what they promised they would do, and compare it with what they actually did. That would be one thing. That would that would be a little more constraining than simply looking at the universe of aid that a state can give. Right? But that that would be uh, a great suggestion. Thank you. Yes? Yes, sir. Uh, It's, uh, it, it might even be more, more towards Tajiks. And when about a year and a half, or let's say almost two years ago, when the Army started doing really well in terms of organization, recruitment, training, um, there were more and more Pashtuns going to it. And they were very optimistic that they were going to have a good ethnic balance. And that's one of the, one of the ethnic balance issues you talked about as well. Um, but as the insurgency ratcheted up, um, what happened is, is that a lot of Pashtuns that were in the army, some of them decided not to go back once their term of service was over. And those that wanted to do it, and remember, these aren't, this is not a draft army. This is volunteer, you get a salary, you get a good salary for being in the army. And Pashtun parts of the country are very, very poor. And so economically, you would expect people to go, all else being equal. But because there started to be a tax on people that had sent somebody to 
the military in Pashtun areas because people faced recriminations and in some conservative communities they faced being shunned. You saw that the military over the past year and a half has had more and more trouble getting Pashtun recruits. And so it's true that it is disproportionately made up of, of Tajiks, uh, then Hazars and, and, and Pashtuns are kind of the bottom in terms of, of their population, their share of the population. It's, you can only get a better ethnic balance by having, by having uh, forced, forced recruitment. You cannot do that in Afghanistan, given the situation and the weakness. Um, so the second thing that you could do is you could fight the insurgency, pacify certain areas, and then recruit out of those areas. The problem is that the government isn't doing that with the military. See, so there are many parts of Afghanistan where there's an active insurgency and there are Pashtun populations. There are other provinces of Afghanistan where there are heavy Pashtun populations where there isn't yet an insurgency. The Afghan state should have probably focused on those areas in terms of getting recruits out where there wasn't an obvious or approximate consequence to joining the Afghan National Army. They didn't do that. And uh, and this, uh, I think that this has hurt them. Yes, please. That, uh, that would be a really interesting turn on the project. That's something that I'm unfortunately not capable of doing. Um, <laughs> yes, oral history, but we're talking about you know something like 30 or 40 hours of oral history interviews, and this would take thousands and thousands. Um, and there are, of course, languages at which I am completely incompetent. And question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's that that's that's interesting. That that would be that would make for a great paper. Uh, I mean, or a book, uh, but it would make for a great paper that um, that would be a tangent to this, and that and that would be fascinating. I'm going to think about that. Thank you. One 
George, for coming. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you listening, and thank you so much. It's great to have comments at such an early stage. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. I'm going to make the most of it.